so, if you're not aware, there's been a lot of activity within the church of the established church of this land of recent. They have been meeting in synods and discussing the possibility of corrupting God's love, of calling sin righteousness and righteousness sin. They have indeed agreed, frustratingly by a greater majority within the bishops than within the laity and the clergy, I don't know what just happened, but um, the bishops who are meant to be the teachers and protectors of the truth voted by a greater majority within the Church of England to bless same-sex unions. And think not that the Church of England is alone in this, but the Roman Catholic Church also the bishop in Germany has mandated and allowed that blessings of same-sex unions may also occur. And the Vatican has reshaped and issued a new liturgy for a baptism of transgender. And so these churches of palaces, of thrones, of litters that are made to carry teachers along into the market, bejeweled clerical robes. These proud, eminent, so-called shepherds of the flock are pleasing the intelligentsia of our age. For I, I reckon if you took a poll, the majority of the common man would not sign up to this stuff. But nonetheless, the loudest voices and the most prominent voices have itchy ears and wish to be appeased. These men enjoy great positions. If they were to call a, a BBC uh, producer and say, I'd like to come on to your show and discuss, yada, discuss this topic, they would be more than welcomed. If they were to write a article in the, um, the Guardian, it would be quickly published. These men, because they have scratched the ears of those who run the papers, the media, are very welcomed and are honored in the spaces of the most important of our age. Today, in contrast, in great contrast, we heard from St. Paul as he wrote to the Colossians. And this epistle is one of those that he's written in the latter part of his life when he has exhibiting the exact opposite of these eminent men who I just mentioned. He is in bonds. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Continue in prayer <coughs> and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 
with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. In exact opposition to what the Welbys, the Cottrells, the Borgolios of the world, Paul is in shackles and he prays to God that his mouth would be opened and that he would speak the truth. That he would speak the truth. His trajectory isn't one of going from one post to another, rising within the ranks of the clerical institution. He doesn't start out his curacy in some rich post in Kent, where the tithing is grand, where the building is beautiful. He doesn't make a connection with a bishop in London so that he can then take a cure a, um, a permanent post, a residential post in the rich leafy suburbs of London. He doesn't then rub shoulders with lords and cabinet to have his name in the short list of those who would be Archbishop of Canterbury. No, he goes from towns that stone him, towns that need to put him in a litter, not to honor him as he walks through the streets, but in a litter that he might be saved, dropped over a wall. He has been scourged. He has been jailed. He has not gone from ruby to diamond to platinum robed clerical attires. No, he has gone from scourging to stoning to whipping to bonds. His trajectory is the exact opposite as he contends for the faith. If you turn your Bibles to that very small but powerful epistle, the epistle of Jude, we're going to hear about how St. Paul, we're going to go back to Ephesians, but I want to jump to Jude for a minute, because there's a concept in the first chapter of Colossians, where he is echoing <clears throat> Genesis 1. And it's a very subtle echo, but it's the echo of our calling to dominion and how we fulfill that calling. Whether we fulfill it through the Bergoglios, the Welbys, and the Cottrells, or do we fulfill it through the way of Paul. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 to 8 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you 
and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, even the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Last verse. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Despise dominion. What does that mean? Do the children know what it means to despise dominion? What is dominion? Eli, Lavinia. Yes, Eli? Authority. Authority. That's right. Authority. Jude tells us that he didn't spare the Israelites who rebelled in the wilderness. He destroyed them. He doesn't spare the angels who rebelled against them. They are in utter darkness forevermore. And the quality that unites them is that they despised dominion. And there are two ways to despise dominion. There is rebelling against God's law, which he gives us an example that Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against the dominion of God, lusting after strange flesh. But then even within the church, whilst we might say we love the law of God, and we love His Word, and we pray, there's this element where we fail in our fundamental calling to expand God's dominion on earth. There's rebelling against God's dominion by actively resisting the law. <clears throat> and then there's this passive, this passivity in which we, if not in word, indeed in deed, rebel against dominion by refusing to answer and live the calling of the expansion of God's dominion here on earth. So let us now turn back to Colossians. Let us now turn back to Colossians and see if we can pick up the echo. 
chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. This concept of fruit and of the world, what does God say when he first created the world? He said, be fruitful and multiply. And in the history of the Hebrew church, of the Israelite people, that call was taken to mean more specifically, turn around, more specifically, the physical multiplication. Have children, plant seeds in the land, multiply, even though the promises are deeper than that. The promise to Abraham was taken. The seeds of these people will number more than the sands of the earth, than the stars of the sky. But in the New Testament, we have our eyes opened to a deeper meaning of this fruitfulness and this multiplication which is part of God's call to us to expand His dominion. You see, it is not enough to have many children. It is not enough to be productive with your hands. The children must be Christian. What good is it to have ten children where nine of them do not follow the Lord. In Colossians, he says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, And this gospel which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, the gospel you see, is in Paul's latter life, going to all the world. As it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard it. So we have this parallel. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, He gave them a word. He gave them a specific word. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over this garden and over this earth. Have of everything but this tree. He gave them scripture. He gave them holy scripture. 
But this Adam, this first Adam, <clears throat> he failed. He failed utterly. He failed in that he surrendered his dominion on behalf of God to the snake. And in so doing, fruitfulness was suppressed. Multiplication would be a danger. And so God, in his infinite mercy, has called out a second Adam. In the same epistle, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, this is obviously Christ being spoken of, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, who previously held the title of the image, made in the image of God, was Adam and Eve. Made in the image of God. But now Christ has come, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And so you see, Christ was there. In Genesis 1. Christ is anticipated in the promise after the curse as the second Adam. And the common battle that Adam had that we continue to have and which the Church of England and the Church of Rome and the other churches are having is the battle with the snake, his wiles, and his philosophy. Chapter 2 in Colossians says this. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men. After the rudiments of the world. And not after Christ. You see, the snake came into the garden to give a philosophy. You're not made to obey God and do as He asks. You are made to fulfill your inner potential and your greatest capability. If you eat this, you won't die. You will know what is good and what is evil. And you will be like God. The poison pill of the snake and the poison pill we hear in the synods and convocations is this. Live the life that you want. Live authentically. Discover yourself. 
And the scriptures are very clear. Where Adam failed in trying to live his best life, the second Adam succeeds. You are born again in the second Adam. And in so being born, you are called to expand his dominion, to be fruitful and to multiply. But the paradox of this calling is that that multiplication happens in the most unexpected way. The Welbys and the Burgoglios and the Cottrells of the world would have us believe <coughs> that if only we grasp the right influence, the right devices, the right rhetoric, the right words, the right sugar honey, the right allure, the right winsomeness, the right delicacies of speech, we would bring more people to us. But the paradox of the expansion of God's dominion is that the expansion happens through our very weakness. Through our very weakness. As exemplified by the cross. The greatest power ever unleashed on earth the power of redemption, the power of reconciliation, the power of peace, the power of joy, was wrought through the weakness of a cross, through the weakness of nails, through hands, through feet. And this is our model. When in Judah it says, they despise dominion, Yes, they hated God's authority. But we also, when we look at the cross, and when we look at the Lord Jesus, and we think of him as a second Adam, when we think what he has come to do, he has come to give his strength in our weakness. In our weakness. Never is Paul more humanely weak than when he is in chains. But never is God's power more intense than when God is writing scripture from jail. Never are we more humanely weak and vulnerable than when we risked jail time for meeting during the pandemic. Yet in that weakness was God's strength magnified. You see, it's the exact opposite of the poisonous philosophy that the world is telling us. We must lean into the weakness instead of running away from it. No greater weakness was shown than when the God-man was nailed to the cross. But never before was God's strength more evident. 1 Colossians 22 says this. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled 
and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. This is the mystery, that in our weakness, his dominion is expanded. Our flesh, as fathers, our flesh, is to do what we delight in. I like work, I like laboring, I like being in meetings, I like communicating, I like doing these things. And then when I get home, I, I've, I've worked hard and I want to rest, I want to relax my mind. But there are children that need my attention. There are children who need disciplining, who need encouraging, who need scripture in their lives. <clears throat> It is easy for me to shrug off the call of dominion in my own family. To say as the snake, to, to listen to the snake and say, ah, someone else will take care of that. They'll be okay. But our gospel is an object lesson. <clears throat> the gospel we heard today. What greater vulnerability was there than a woman with an uncontrollable bleeding or a dead girl? How easily would it have been to Jesus to say, that is unclean, which it is according to Jewish law. A woman with the issue of blood is unclean to be ostracized and moved to the fringes of society. A woman who, a person who is dead is not to be touched. You see, we come home and we find the stinking, rotting flesh of our sins. And the easy thing to do is to evade. But we have a call to dominion. We have a call for our fruit to multiply. And so we must lean in. We must do as Jesus, who did not run from these unclean things, but he lent in, he healed, he resurrected. And this is the paradox. A church militant made of frail creatures who stumble about, <clears throat> who shoot themselves in the foot, are made powerful, unlike Adam, when they believe the promises of God when they count on God, when they say, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to pay for next week's food bill. I don't know how I'm going to pay for the hall next month for the church. I don't know how I'm going to preach another sermon when I've exhausted and I've gone and done 10 different things. We say, God, I don't know how we're going to do, I'm going to do this. But you are faithful and you've called us to expand that dominion 
and I believe you. And I believe that you're going to equip me. I believe you're going to give me what's necessary. This is the paradox. In this world where the C of E's are trying to stay relevant and keep their seat at the table of intelligentsia by open and outright heresy and compromise, we instead, we instead to choose to reach with all that we have, the garment of the Lord Jesus. We choose to petition God for help. We say, I don't know how in a world that wants to live like Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to make it. But you are faithful. And if I stand with the truth, I know you will cover me. It's His baptism. It's His Eucharist. It's His sacred word. It's the fellowship of His body. These are the powerful weapons and aids to do the work we are called to do. A work that isn't about winning a popularity contest. But rather, it is this. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power <clears throat> unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Strength. The strength to multiply. The strength to subdue your own flesh. It begins <clears throat> with God. Calling out to God, I know you've called me to dominion. Help me. Help me to start by disciplining my body, my temptations, my flesh. And then let me bless my people, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, my father, my daughters, my sons. For the world will continue to feed us the lie. The lie that if we only live out our true, authentic self, we shall find hope and joy and happiness. Nothing is further from the truth. Reach out for that garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is true. And... As we celebrate later on, all that we are thankful for, as we offer unto God our thanksgiving with a great feast, let us remember that all good things come from God. And He has given us the most important thing, His Son and our salvation. Let us then turn in thanksgiving.
and subdue those wretched demons. Subdue that army of vile vermin. For if God is for us, what can stand against us? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.